Hello and welcome, finally, once again, to Yesterladies. Uh, I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. And we really have to apologize for the insane summer break that we took. <laughs> Basically a summer break into December. Yeah, but you know, whatever. It's our podcast. We can do what we want. Um, <laughs> we were just finding it all a little much between various commitments and various, you know, babies that having been born and, and <laughs> requiring sustenance and Ugh, stuff. Care. Caring Ugh. for babies. Jeez. You're, you're a stupid baby. And, and theatrical performances. And, <laughs> and theatrical uh, performances. Know, North American trips all over the continent. Yes, and father's broken things. ankles. Oh, and just, You know, Those just a lot stuff. happened. Yeah, just, there was a lot going on. Strikes. Strikes. Five-week yes. strikes. Yes. Yeah. My goodness. Our lives are just so exciting, Heather. It's, it's full of mystery and intrigue. It's Dana. true. It's true. <laughs> now, I feel like we should say off the top here that um, what we're doing today uh, is recording our uh, now second annual Christmas extravaganza <laughs> uh which will be lots of fun but we're kind of looking on this as a special edition episode and to be to be frank with you dear listeners this is not necessarily us coming back to a regular posting schedule we'll have to kind of see as we get into the new year what things are like for for both of us um but uh we're not promising <laughs> to come back with regularity, but what we can promise, I think, is at the very least, we can do sporadic episodes over the next little while, and eventually, we promise to get back into a, a regular posting schedule, but we wanted to do something, so at the very least, here is our end-of-year Christmas extravaganza. <laughs> a smorgasbord of festive tidbits, if you will. Yes. A, um, what's the phrase we really a like? cherished medley. A cherished medley. <laughs> Holiday toothsome, toothsome treats for the year. <laughs> Earsome treats? I think that works. What kind of treats? Earsome treats. Earsome treats. Ew. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> Back on track. Back on track. Um, if you, ooh, pardon me. If you, if you listen to our uh, our Christmas episode from last year, you perhaps will remember that what we did was, as Heather said, present a medley of of little items. So we don't have one big story, but um, several little tidbits. Um, we're doing the same thing again this year, um, and we have six items, and we're just going to take turns. So Heather, do you want to uh, start us off? I will lead the way. Please so, do. Uh, the first tidbit on our list is uh, all about White House Christmas traditions. And this being Yesterday Ladies, this is tied up with the First Ladies of the White House uh, very often. So, they played a big role in Christmas. Uh, celebrations at the White House, and we will hear all about it. And they still do. They still do, yes. They just true. posted uh, something about Ivanka. Um, I always get them mixed up. Ivana oh, and Ivanka. Melania? Melania, Trump, yes. yes. That's not even one of them. Oh, God. <laughs> I can't. Whatever. Um, <laughs> we won't get political, I promise. Um, but, uh, yeah, she just unveiled the like White House Christmas decorations. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I learned doing this research that they are themed each year. Mm -hmm. So the First Lady has the honor of choosing the theme for the official Christmas tree. But we will get into all that as we go. Uh, so... Um, Back in the day, uh, in the early years of the White House. In yesteryear. Uh, in yesteryear, uh, Christmases were very simple family affairs. So it wasn't the huge sort of hoopla that it is today and media frenzy and all this. Um, it was just a family party. And they would decorate the White House with greens collected from nearby. Um, and they would have a small celebration. So it was very tame. Um, and uh, 
uh, then we have a list of successive presidents taking it up a notch (laughs) each presidency (laughs) or each year. So, um, no, this could never happen. Um, so in 1834, president Andrew Jackson held a children's frolic with (laughs) hundreds of children and they danced and they played games and there was an elaborate dinner, which doesn't seem to match with the idea of the frolic 500 children. No, (laughs) it seems like a terrible combination, but okay. And uh, they had an indoor snowball fight. What? Yes. With specially made cotton balls. (laughs) the the snowballs. Specially made? Yeah, well, I mean, that's worrisome because it's at the time of slavery and cotton and slavery in the 1830s. It just seems really problematic. But Yes, problematic. Problematic. So so anyway, um, so then fast forwarding many decades to the 1889, or to to the 1889, (laughs) to the year 1889, the first Christmas tree graces the White House. This is during the Harris administration. Uh, And then just a few years later, 1894, uh, they take it up a Another notch. And the first electric Christmas tree lights adorn the Christmas tree. Uh, Dana, what color do you think the first American Christmas tree lights were oh, in the White I House? Would, I would hope that they were, you know, tasteful little uh, white lights. But, mm. <laughs> no, they were red, white, and blue. Uh-huh. <laughs> of course oh, they were. Of course they were. I have in my notes, red, white, and blue. Natch. <laughs> Natch. Gosh. Uh, yeah. So, and then uh, heading into the 1900s, First Lady Hoover uh, established the first official Christmas tree. And so the official Christmas tree of the White House now every year stands in the blue room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, it's a big deal. And the theme is chosen by the First Lady and they get to decorate it. They get to sort of commission all the decorations and like control the whole, the whole scene of this, <laughs> this official Christmas tree. Um, and uh, First Lady Jackie Kennedy in 1961 chose a nutcracker sweet theme Aww. for her. So it was very classy. Uh, and then they have a whole list of all these other uh, First Ladies and what they chose. So Hillary Clinton had eight years, eight Christmases in the White House. Um, and she did a different artistic, American artistic community uh, each time. That's so cool. I did think that was really cool. Yeah. So I admire that idea. Uh, Laura Bush did all creatures great and small. So it was like mm. animal themed. Um, and Mich- Michelle Obama did simple gifts. So spending time with family and that sort of thing. I thought it was nice. Um, Okay. But we're going to roll it back. So those are the more modern first ladies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you go back to earlier times in in the White House, earlier Christmases. Yesteryear. Yesteryear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, A whole bunch. There was a whole cluster of first ladies uh, who were from the South. So then I was reading about these Southern traditions and like Southern Christmas um, traditions, which I didn't realize would be different than Northern Christmas traditions. But of course they were, right? They had their own flair. Um, So a lot of these ladies came from large, prosperous Southern plantations or they had married men who went on to be president who owned plantations like that. So they were very, they were coming out of the plantation tradition. Um, so Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, these were all, these were all included in this party. Uh, and the good thing, at least for the party was that, uh, these, they were more liberal. They were Anglicans. So they weren't quite as Puritan or, or uh, as controlled. So, mean, so um, they're allowed to drink. Uh, yes. They're allowed to dance. Oh boy. They're allowed to play music and play cards. <gasps> Shocking. Oh, my God. So there were some quite some raucous parties happening in the White House. Um, and the celebrations lasted for 12 days. So the 12, oh, right. The 12 days, the 12 of, days Christmas. of Christmas. It was yeah. a 12-day thing. And guests would travel sometimes for days to arrive. So you needed to make your visit worth it. So instead of just showing up at 4 for turkey and going home at 9 when everyone's passed out, <laughs> like we do today, uh, you would sometimes they would stay for weeks. Well, so you'd have guests. Awesome. It does sound awesome, actually. The more I <laughs> read about that idea, I was like, this needs to come back. But uh, And because everyone was together, and this was usually the annual gathering of the most relatives all in one spot, a lot of marriages would happen at this time. So you're kind of doubling up oh. on the opportunity because everyone's there. So this, Okay, this makes sense because I... Um 
one of my uh one of my favorite dickens novels is the pickwick papers and um there's a there's a whole one of the big chunks of the book is like they're having a christmas celebration and there's this like wedding happening happening at the same time and i've always kind of been like why would they do that but that makes sense it does it does make sense Apparently yes. it's common that's interesting it's a common thing yes so uh we learned that and then um we learned uh there's a few tidbits about sort of funny facts about uh early christmases and how the first ladies handled them so first lady dolly madison uh had a particularly depressing christmas so it was the first christmas after the white house was burned down in the oh. war of 1812 by the oh. british so they didn't have a white house to celebrate <laughs> christmas then and they were living in the the octagon house or something crazy <laughs> some borrowed building the that they were octagon. using as a temporary white house until the the you know it was rebuilt uh-huh. um and so they had a really depressing christmas there but then after the new white house was or after the White House was reconstructed, um, she apparently had a pet green parrot and she would allow it to just fly through the rooms during Christmas <laughs> and this parrot could just roam free all of Christmas. So this is part of the party. Do we know what the name was? Of, uh, of the parrot? No. The oh, parrot is unnamed. Although I did shame. not I did not do further research on the parrot. So perhaps the name is out there and was just not in the articles that it's I read. Disappointing. It was disappointing. Okay. <laughs> Back to Andrew Jackson who had the children frolic. Um, yeah, he, yeah. Did, he did more than just that. So he was a, a bachelor and so his niece, Emily Don. Donaldson took on the social role of first lady for his administration. Um, and she was trying to be matchmaker to a socialite friend of hers. So she had a close friend named Cora Livingston and she was trying to hook Cora up with the VP who was a widower and his name was Martin Van Buren. Oh, so, yeah. so she hung sprigs of chandelier or sorry. Spr- oh my God. <laughs> sprigs of mistletoe from all the chandeliers in the white house. And apparently it was like really obvious that this was her strategy. <laughs> it was terribly embarrassing for Cora and, and Van Buren or Martin. Oh, no. <laughs> And, and it didn't work. <laughs> they were not interested in, in not having pairing it. up. So her mistletoe plot failed. Um, and the last thing I, I didn't realize this at all, but uh, First Lady Peggy Taylor uh, required, she demanded that coconut cake be served every Christmas that she was in the White House because apparently this is a Southern Christmas tradition to have coconut cake. Oh. I'm wondering if it's like snowy looking. <laughs> Looks okay. like the snow of the North or something. <laughs> but uh, there you go. So perhaps at your next Christmas um celebration you can break out some christmas uh, some coconut cake and say hey we're celebrating a southern american christmas tradition just like at the white house just like at the white house back in the day (laughs) nice very nice yeah (laughs) all right um well i guess i'm up now you are it's your turn dana my turn at bat um so the, this next one here is uh, we we did try to be a little bit um, more inclusive this year and not just talk about Christmas traditions, um, and we've got just really a couple. Unfortunately, we weren't able to find. We we didn't have enough time to do deeper research, or we uh, hopefully next year we can find some um, more worldwide traditions. But the one exception, the kind of main exception we have here is we do have a Hanukkah um, little episode. Um, and I found this very interesting. So this is all about um, the the. She is a biblical character, from what I remember, but she has her own book in in the Jewish uh, religious text, the Book of Judith. Um, and apparently, this is not now something that is kind of traditionally part of Hanukkah celebrations. But in the Middle Ages, for a few hundred years. Uh, Judith was celebrated right along with the traditional story of the Maccabees, hmm. which is, of course, everybody knows that's the, you know, the oil lasted for eight nights. And that's, you know, the story of, of Hanukkah. Well, apparently Judith was just a big as just as big a deal. Huh. 
Um, and uh, in the book of Judith, and I'll get into her her story in a minute here, um, it, it promised that her praise would never depart from the heart of those who remember the power of God and that her actions would go down through all generations of our descendants. Wow. So, and I really, it's a, she's pretty a cool lady. So, nice. you know, I think Judith. we should bring Judith back yeah. as a, as a well-known figure. Um, so although she's not actually historically connected to the story with the Maccabees, um, the story of Judith shares the kind of similar theme of Jewish faith and courage overcoming a larger, um, overwhelming fourth, uh, fourth force. <laughs> I suddenly developed a lisp. So in the second century BC, the Assyrian army was invading all over the place, uh, particularly the Near East. And one of the towns that they um, besieged was Bethulia. Um, And one of the top generals of the famous emperor Nebuchadnezzar uh was attacking this little town and i guess it was kind of a linchpin apparently if bethulia fell the whole country could become under assyrian control so the city's elders were really they didn't know what else to do and they decided to surrender if they weren't rescued by by their forces within a few days meanwhile judith who was a uh young and beautiful widow uh decided to try to take responsibility for the survival Mm. of her people and they were famine stricken and kind of at their wits ends. And I guess for whatever reason, she decided to stand up and try to do something, which is pretty ballsy. So accompanied only by her maid, the story (laughs) goes, she set out for the enemy camp and uh, smitten with her beauty. The top general there invited her to a banquet. Of course. So she, you know, charmed him and like convinced him to, to drink more and more. And then when he <laughs> fell into a uh, drunken stupor and they were alone in his tent, she prayed for God's help and then took his sword and decapitated him. Oh gosh. Wow. I know. She's pretty oh, badass. <laughs> So this a dramatic, th- way it is dramatic. To, uh, I know. to solve the issue. Whoa. So this throws the Assyrian <laughs> army into total confusion, and she went back and urged the Israelites to launch a surprise attack, and they emerged victorious. My goodness! So Whoa. well done, Judith. Oh, Judith! I know. She's a little like um, Mata Hari or something. Yeah, you know, I was going like to say like a sexy spy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, infiltrating the enemy camp. <laughs> I like that they just happen to have a banquet going on. Of course, yeah. The well, banquet. Just got to have a banquet during the war. <laughs> yeah. Every night. Every night before battle, I banquet. <laughs> um, so, again, even though this story isn't actually related to the story of the Maccabees, apparently mm-hmm. the idea of this courageous act at the 11th hour under tremendous pressure from outside forces was similar enough, these two stories, that um, in the Middle Ages, rabbis kind of brought them together and judith was part of the celebration of hanukkah and then i guess it kind of gradually fell away and that's not really something that is celebrated so much anymore but um maybe she should be yeah i quite like that story that's Pretty kick-ass. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Judith, speaking over. Go Judith. Taking control of the situation. <laughs> That's what you got to do. It's, you know, you're under siege. <laughs> the town elders aren't doing jack. You got to stand up and... Take things into your own hands. Mm-hmm. Literally. Why? <laughs> my, my, my. All right. Well, that makes my topic seem 
a little <laughs> a little pale in comparison. I'm here to complain about the overworking of women at Christmas. This is a legit issue, though. It really is. <laughs> yes. So if you're not being like... besieged by Assyrians, you might be besieged by Christmas tasks. <laughs> I feel like I've been having a lot of uh, conversations with female friends lately about emotional labor. Yes, yes, yes. So if you don't know what that phrase means, I would say go and look it up because yes. it's really interesting and um, a pretty great term, I think, to describe... A phenomenon that has been going on <laughs> since the time of Judith and yeah. probably before. Yeah, seizures. <laughs> Judith had to do the emotional labor of take care of this guy. <laughs> you guys can't handle this. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves in most contexts in North America as a pretty egalitarian society. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a lot of sort of gender equality. Um, uh, but one consistent area that stays unequal is emotional labor. So women just do a lot more of the effort and the work in their relationship and in the relationships of others. Uh, and, and often this is not even their work to do, right? They'll mm-hmm. sort of take over tasks for their, well, their it, partner. It ends up being a lot of the, the little things yes. that seem like, well, that's no big deal. Like, just, right. you know, this little thing, that little thing. But they all add up very quickly yes. to yeah. a huge imbalance. Right. And they become draining and taxing and, uh, and it just well, and ends just, in inequality. I think it's, it's not even so much the tasks themselves as the, like, it just kind of falls out that in a male-female relationship, more often than not, the woman ends up being she's organizing everything. And even even when the 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 partner is a guy who is you know really willing to 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 do his part and do whatever is asked for him, and you know the kind of one of the the problems here is that it's still kind of more often than not the the female partner who is having to kind of okay, well, this needs to be done, this needs right, to be done, assigning right. tasks yes. almost and like kind of yes. keeping everything straight organizationally yes. in her head. Yeah, she's sort of running that massive list of households. Yeah, yeah and kind of stage managing all yes. of family Power. life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. working on that phrase while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. we're not, we don't listen to each other when we record these. We're just sitting there thinking just of the next witty thing craft that we're going to sound bite. <laughs> we're just a couple of egotistical podcasters over here (laughs) but you get the benefit of that you get all of our witty yeah exactly (laughs) you benefit Um, yeah so that's the basic premise of emotional labor and uh christmas being christmas and being more work than the rest of the year this this is simply um doubled or tripled this is multiplied this issue is multiplied during the christmas season so uh there were some researchers who looked into this issue and they did a scientific study on Mm. how this breaks down so what they did is they polled 2,000 adults these adults recorded like recorded and then reported what they had been up to over the christmas holidays and what tasks they took care of and how long they did them and so here's what they found so the the big breakdown the big takeaway is that women spend on average 72 full hours on holiday prep work or um, cleanup afterwards. So that's three full days uh, of additional labor built into a woman's schedule. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you spread 72 hours out over the couple weeks around Christmas and and especially concentrating on the few days right at Christmas, that's a lot of extra uh, work. Now, Mm -hmm. it's not like men get off the hook. They spend 29 hours on average, but that's still less than half of what the average woman is. The average man is doing less than half the, the holiday work uh, than the average woman. So, uh, uh, but I especially enjoyed that they made lists of I know, what the men, the men often or mostly did these tasks and the women <laughs> often mostly did these tasks. So you can 
think as we go through to sort of compare this with your reality and in your household or in the household you grew up in, who did what and does this match what this poll found? So this was a British poll, uh, but what I was reading was almost exactly, uh, it almost exactly matched what I had experienced as a child. And then there were some differences uh, with myself and my husband now. So, okay, men uh, in general took care of cleaning and decorating the outside of the house. <laughs> it's the guy out on the ladder putting up the lights. Mm-hmm. And that gets a big X for me because I'm the one that puts up the lights in our household. <laughs> and we've had neighbors, you know, flabbergasted by the fact that I, the female in our household, am out on the roof putting up the lights. But I love it. I think it's really fun to get on on the roof. And I especially, it's like my secret joy to see people drive by and be like, oh, <laughs> like, like the rubberneck and seeing somebody out on the roof. And it's just a really fun view. So I don't, I actually don't mind it as long as it's not too cold. Um, uh, however, in most households, the men are the ones scrabbling about on the ladders. Um, so the men usually carve the turkey. They usually build unre- or take apart and build the children's presents. So they're required. They're, they're taking care of that. Um, they, this one, I had a question mark after they usually wash the dishes afterwards after the big mm. Christmas meal. And I thought, mm. I don't know, most households I've been exposed to, the women do the dishes after, but I think in some, it's kind of a tradition that the yeah, guys will kind of pitch what, in and put on I've the aprons. Seen, yeah. yeah it's, so. it's a little bit of a, okay. Finish, finish okay. the list of the men's tasks yes. and then I've got a, an opinion. Okay. Boys. Okay. Um, and, uh, the men afterwards get rid of the Christmas tree. So they would take down mm-hmm. all of the, mm-hmm. any outdoor decor and then they would get rid of the Christmas tree. So and the, that's the end of the that's list, right? kind yeah. of the end of the so, list. Okay. Yeah. And I know, I know kind of more or less what's on the women's list. And I know you'll talk like about that. In everything else. Yeah. Everything else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, comparatively speaking, kind of, I was thinking about these things just now thinking like, okay, kind of like the stuff the men do is a little bit more of the like outward facing show kind of look at it. I'm, mm. I'm up and on the roof putting the stuff up and I, and like kind of slightly more fun stuff, like putting together the toys yes. and like yes. the showy job of carving the turkey it's, and it's looking like the big, it's a little bit yes. performative. Exactly. Yes. That's yes. the word. And even I think, um, you know, the like washing up afterwards, <laughs> if it's a, you know, maybe the household where it's like, you know, once a year, like, well, honey, I'll do the dishes. You take a for seat. You, you know? yeah. yeah. Put your feet up. Yeah. Put your feet up. <laughs> You've lady. earned one day <laughs> yeah. of the year. Yeah. <laughs> this may be a little bit unfair. And I know sure. there are lots of men yes. out there who, who, um, you know, if they're doing these things, they're doing them not out of any desire to be performative or whatever, but just kind of, I don't know, that kind yeah. of struck me that yeah. a lot of that, a lot of those things on that list are a little bit, as you say, more kind of yeah. showy, performative, kind of publicly earning some social credit Ex- in the, yes. in the, when there's people watching, yes. they'll, they'll do these things for house. Yes, 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 yes. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, all right. And then comes the list, the longer list <laughs> of all the women's list. duties. So, uh, shopping, grocery shopping for holiday meals, cleaning and decorating the inside of the house, uh, writing and sending Christmas cards. That seems to be mm. almost exclusively a female task, uh, present shopping and wrapping. And this is where I know, uh, some women of our generation have really put their foot down mm-hmm. and where we'll shop for our presents, mm-hmm. the people we want to buy for, but the guys are on their own. You shop for your parents. <laughs> you shop you. for your people. Yeah. You are yeah. And I've even too much to the chagrin of anyone receiving a gift from him. I make my husband wrap his own gifts so. <laughs> <laughs> and he's begged me, please, because I am a much, I'm a much superior gift wrapper. I, there's a wonderful gift wrapper. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so he now just pays 
the mall ladies to wrap the <laughs> gifts. So I'm glad that my labor has now gone to pay yeah. other women's labor. You know, I'm not doing this for free. You can go pay someone. Yeah, exactly. What it costs like to that. do that work. Yeah. Although it's it's a charity thing. It is. There but we still, go. So yeah, it's going to a good yeah, cause. It's going to a good yeah. cause, right? Rather than me slaving away up in my loft with Christmas tunes jingling. Uh, what else? Okay. Um, arranging holiday visits and the amount mm-hmm. of stress and mm-hmm. angst that can go into coordinating different family schedules. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really minor issue, but it's it not. is not. And you have to keep track from year to year. And every year, I don't know if this happens to you. We get on the phone and my mom's like, oh, I don't know whose Christmas it is. We can't, <laughs> we can't keep track of who gets the coveted Christmas dinner. Christmas Day, 25th. Dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, your Aunt Margaret. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't have an Aunt Margaret. But, you know, we're trying to go back and forth about who, who, what, what did we do last yeah. year? And I'm like, why don't we just write this down? Every year we neglect to write it down. So there is some stress involved and, and politics, intra-family mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. And you can cause a big blowout if you, if you, you do this up. wrong, if yeah. you messed up. Exactly. Uh, okay. Prepping the children's wardrobes, right? I, I mean, if it were up to a lot of dads, kids would just be hanging around in jeans and t-shirts. I don't know. So, <laughs> so, uh, but some might do a really good job. So, uh, and decorating the tree. Usually it's mm-hmm. the, the lady of the house decorating the tree. Um, on the actual day of Christmas, they're doing most of the cooking, cleaning up after the present opening. So all the paper everywhere. Uh, and then they had serving drinks to guests. Which, uh, yeah, that was one yeah. thing I found. Because I, in my experience, that's been uh, the gentleman. Absolutely. When I think about my family Christmases, yeah. it's my dad, it's my uncle, it's my, it was my grandfather. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was always mm-hmm. the gentleman. But yeah, I was surprised to see that one and yeah. I put a question mark. So perhaps it's a, a British North American divide. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, who knows? maybe. Who knows? Yeah, because I as well have seen mostly the men offering the drinks. Um, and yeah, so that's a much longer list. It is a much than, longer list. Than yeah. the guys' tasks. So I guess the message here is you know, we have to, maybe we have to be a little more militant about not, not <laughs> well, doing the men's tasks. Well, I think for any gentlemen listening, because I, I, you know, I know by and large that men out there, they're not, this isn't some kind of deliberate um thing that they're trying to get away with or something right. like doing it's not a conspiracy less. it's not a conspiracy <laughs> no conspiracy. no definitely right. not but i think it is good to see studies like this and hopefully um some men will kind of hear this and and maybe just think a little bit more mm. about like oh yeah i didn't really realize or i didn't consider the long list of things that maybe she's doing that i just kind of take for granted and don't really think about mm. And, you know, maybe there are ways, you know, some of those gentlemen could kind of step up and, mm-hmm. and try to help a little bit more with some of those tasks and just, just kind of reconsidering like, okay, so really consider all of the labor that goes into Christmas and holidays and, and just daily life. Because of course, mm-hmm. as we said, this right. is the issue of emotional labor that extends to, you know, all year round. Yeah, it's representative. Yeah. Of a so just pr- issue. Yeah. Trying yeah. to be a little bit more aware, all of us women and men about, okay, what, you know, what are the things that, that we're doing and spending our time on and can they be a little bit more balanced? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. A little Christmas lesson for you all. Uh-huh. <laughs> our moral tale. Our Christmas moral tale. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, the next one here we've got is another kind of, you know, a little bit of a social commentary slash uh, feminist style research, whatever. (laughs) Um, Ostensibly, it's about, I read this article that kind of, I think it's just the hook that they hang this research on, basically. But whatever, (laughs) I'm going to go with it because I liked it. Um, So this was an article out of Scotland 
Um, and the hook was kind of talking about Hogmanay, which I think is how you say it. <laughs> I think so. Okay. Um, which for those of you who don't know, which I'm guessing is most of you, <laughs> um, Hogmanay equals Scottish New Year. That's the the Gaelic word for the last day of the year. And Hogmanay actually can kind of extend over New Year's Eve and I guess several days past past um, uh, January 1st. Uh, but just kind of briefly, the the tradition of Hogmanay goes back, you know, to like like ancient traditions, possibly Norse, whatever, um, you know, having to do again with like the winter solstice and dark days, and I don't know, similar to like Christmas, all that kind right. of stuff. Uh, but basically, it it, w- it consists still to this day of uh, gift giving, uh, visiting friends and neighbors, and then various kind of traditions. A lot of them related to uh, luck. Um, so good luck for the coming year, that kind of thing. And the big one that is, uh, the most widespread, there are a lot of like little regional kind of customs that different areas do that are specific, but the, the big one that everybody kind of takes part in or seems to know about is the practice of first footing, (laughs) which starts immediately after midnight. And I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia article (laughs) because I really liked it. So this involves being the first person to cross cross the threshold of a friend or neighbor and often involves the giving of symbolic gifts such as salt coal shortbread uh-huh. whiskey and black bun which is a rich fruitcake mm. so some of those i would appreciate more than others <laughs> um so all of these different things are intended to bring different kinds of luck to the household or being visited so then food and drink as the gifts kind of in return are given to the guests. And this goes on throughout the early hours of January 1st and well into the next day. And apparently in, in modern times, this can go on well into the middle of January. People visiting each other and and kind of giving gifts. And then my favorite little tidbit here is that, um, uh, so, okay, so the first foot is a person, I guess. The first person to enter across the threshold is supposed to set the luck for the rest of the year. And um, traditionally, the preferred first foot should be a tall, dark-haired man. Ah. <laughs> like, yes, please. Yes. First foot in my house. <laughs> yes, first foot in my apartment, please, this year. Any uh, tall, dark-haired uh, gentleman. Gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this kind of leads into the fact that of course Hogmanay as is true um, for New Year's Eve kind of around the world and in Western Western cultures is a heavy drinking time and uh, traditionally throughout the years and still today you know I and you always see them leading up to to New Year's Eve um, various stories about the problems of of over drinking and binge drinking and kind of the social ills that go along with this so this of course started you know, a couple centuries ago, the kind of moral panic about alcoholism, which was, of course, a very legitimate social mm. problem. It still is, but it was much more so uh, back in the day. And in England, there was a famous uh, artist named William Hogarth who produced uh, now infamous engravings of uh, different kind of uh, I guess libidinous you know drinking <laughs> scenes the most famous of which is called gin lane and this was in the mid um 18th century and this whole his his whole point was this kind of moralistic effort to try to control london's apparent gin crisis 
So um, I guess Gin Lane is it's a it's a large scene, I believe. I should have looked it up for this. I'm familiar with it. it it's a, yeah, it's a street scene. Right. You can there's see like, down at least two streets. Right. There's, there's like multiple whole, people. Yeah. There's a big yeah. crowd of people, and there's there's sort of steps leading down to kind of a wharf area, or if I'm not mistaken, or like a lower level, and it's okay. It's sort of like roiling with life. There's people right. scrambling all over this canvas, drinking, and carousing. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the most famous kind of little images from Gin Lane is is this partially undressed woman smiling as she carelessly drops a small child onto the street far below. <laughs> yeah, she's tipping over the railing. Right. And it's basically like she's Dangling tripped. A child. Yeah, and yeah. he's like, oops, like smiling <laughs> as her baby tumbles out of her arms. And the baby's like, <laughs> like, like it's got its arms up and oh, it's no. naked and it's like oh no it's an expression of horror on its face and oh, no. uh, yeah it's supposed to be this terrible moment of like look what gin will do <laughs> so this is basically illustrative of what has been happening in the media probably before then and since then around the problem with over drinking and as this article points out over 250 years later the media is still portraying the drinking behavior of women and men really differently mm. so um this is uh kind of all taken from a research study that was done a few years ago uh, again in the uk um these researchers looked into you know who was drinking and how much and the research clearly so shows that over twice as many men die from alcohol misuse every year as women. And yet uh, media coverage tends to include headlines like new booze death map of sh map shame of Scottish women oh, and always is accompanied by uh, lots of pictures of women, young women in particular, slumped, you know, scantily clad, clutching wine glasses. <laughs> Um, and you see it constantly, especially leading up to the holidays. Um, and then one of the most well-known photos, and I, th I believe it is just one photo that just keeps getting reproduced over and over again in all of these articles that get trotted out every year, mm -hmm. is this kind of now well-known image of bench girl and i actually have <laughs> heard of this okay. it's a photograph of a young woman in a sh very short black dress uh, sprawled out on a street bench and she's like kind of semi-conscious okay. and that's become this kind of well-known image that's very much associated with the the fear and panic over mm. binge drinking so another uh, these researchers did this search of hundreds of of newspapers and news articles and found that all of these articles um, associate binge drinking with women far more frequently than men and present women's drinking as much more problematic. Hmm. So men are usually represented as violent or disorderly, uh, while women are characterized as being out of control and unfeminine and like scantily clad and undignified. So their kind of binge drinking is really much tied to they're not being feminine. They're not mm. being, you know, traditionally yeah. female. Yeah. Mm. Um, so uh, one of the things that goes along with this is this a very strong emphasis on the deterioration of how they look and their attractiveness, oh, attractiveness level <laughs> due to alcohol. So they would use words like ravaged, ruined, haggard. Um, they say that they're scantily clad, half naked, nearly bearing all, <laughs> uh, this kind of thing. And um, articles that talk about men don't refer to their physical appearance at all. Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so basically it's that they, these articles, they don't suggest a lack of masculinity when talking about men binge drinking. Well, um, talking about women who binge drink, it's suggesting this Hmm. lack of femininity and it's also taking this very moralistic Hmm. tone. So, uh, although young women have tended to be for centuries and still now kind of the face, the public face of binge drinking, uh, as I I said earlier, men are much more likely to drink than women. They're much more likely to drink heavily and they're more likely to drink more often and to die um, from alcohol-related causes. So the gender gap is, it is narrowing, Hmm. but um, men are still way, way ahead of women in in all of these statistics. So um, I guess just something, another kind of double standard to to Mm. keep in mind that Mm. Um, when you see these kind of <laughs> depictions of, and I mean, not that been been drinking, of course, is a, a major problem. It is an issue, but um, we also need to be kind of considering the way in which we're portraying it, and and are we kind of coming down more heavily on women mm-hmm. and ignoring the fact that it seems to be more of a problem for men mm-hmm. and focusing on on women. Interesting. So as we head into the holidays, another little mm-hmm. lesson for you: please yes. drink in moderation. Keep this in mind. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Be careful. Yeah. Don't drink and drive. No, and don't uh, don't uh, be moralistic about young women drinking and being uh, <laughs> right. scantily clad. Just offer to call them a taxi. Exactly. <laughs> help out. Exactly. Yes. yes. All right. So I'm going to take it away with our next. Please uh, do. Very heavily moralistic topic. No, it's not too bad. I okay. Yeah, we but, have been uh, very moralistic. We've, we, yeah, we've been a little. A but little this is this next face. one is a little more like it's uplifting. Yeah, it's, it's uplifting. uplifting. It's moralistic. For a cause I think we can all agree on. I hope so. (laughs) So, uh, okay. So my topic is women abolitionists and Christmas bazaars. So if you've ever heard of a Christmas bazaar, uh, you may not have known that abolitionists... We should clarify just because it suddenly occurred to me that um, some people may not have heard of a a bazaar and may think that you're saying bizarre. Bizarre. No, no. no, I'm not saying a crazy weird Christmas. I'm saying a... Uh, a bazaar is with an A. Yes, with a you would have a. Uh, it's kind of like a fair, yeah, a fair or um, like a craft sale sort of, but maybe a bit more entertaining. Um, so you have lots of items for sale, crafts and and uh, presents and food mm-hmm. often, and maybe some a entertainment thrown in. Churches, yes, historically Church do bazaars. this and still do. Correct, they're a big yeah. thing, um, and uh, organizations of all of all types will mm-hmm. host them. So. Uh, you may have attended a bazaar before, mm-hmm. um, but you may not have known that the tradition of Christmas bazaars started with abolitionists, specifically uh, female abolitionists. Yeah. So uh, we're going to start with a little a little lead-in of what Christmas was like before the abolitionists got a hold of it and started bringing in their bazaars. Uh, <laughs> so in early American colonial history, so we're talking like the time of the 13 colonies uh, in what will become the U.S., uh, Christmas was not not quite what it is today. Mm-hmm. So it was basically more uh, a raucous night of heavy drinking and brawling. <laughs> so there is not much uh, connection that's, to that's biblical New Year's Eve now. Right, exactly. <laughs> and they actually said that. They said it was kind of a combination of the 4th of July and New Year's Eve. St. Uh, Patrick's Day. <laughs> right, yeah. Just big drinking and partying. Or excuse to drink and party, yeah. Um, and, however, this is, this is 
Puritan society that we're talking mm-hmm. about. So that kind of behavior is frowned upon by most. Uh, so if you were participating in this, this crazy uh, party, you could be arrested and uh, detained and jailed and this sort of thing. So uh, the Puritans were frowning on this sort of mm-hmm. behavior. Um, so abolitionists decided to take the, the obviously the energy of this uh, holiday and sort of melded into something a little more useful. So we're talking the 1830s. Um, and in 1834, an organization started called the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. And what I really like about these folks, uh, MASS would be their acronym, <laughs> uh, is that they were both men and women and black and white. So we had people of both genders, people, uh, a diverse group of people. Um, and they decided to host Christmas bazaars specifically as fundraisers for their abolition work. Uh, so they took this crazy holiday and uh, kind of tamed it and turned it into an opportunity to raise funds for this excellent cause, mm-hmm. right? so trying to end slavery. Um, so they took their anti-slavery mission and they started connecting it with the message of the Christmas holiday, the sort of Christmas messaging we see t- today, right? So um, the equality of, of humanity and mm-hmm. you know, caring for other people and brotherhood and all this sort of thing. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of a good um, mashup, really, of like, you know, the Christian values at Christmas. And it's funny because I'm, I'm, it's like they're starting the tradition that people still do now of kind of um, using the holidays as a way to be like, you know, yeah, this is the time of year when we want to be kind to others and think of, and organizations deliberately kind of piggy- piggybacking <laughs> yes. on that to raise money for various Absolutely. causes, which, yes. Hey, I'm not knocking it. We're doing that in my, at my workplace <laughs> as we speak. So <laughs> yes. And I think it's very successful. It's a very yeah, successful is, campaign yeah. to choose to run at that time. And we see a lot of um, commercials as well, right? These like international mm-hmm. fundraising organizations that uh, that will do this around the holidays. Um, so the abolitionist ladies were the first to come up with that strategy. Awesome. Um, and because bazaars are predominantly hosted by women, uh, the newspaper men who were following this or describing it, they were not impressed. So they really <laughs> came down hard on the Christmas bazaar, which went on to become like the most innocuous, common, like family friendly. Like this, yeah. this went on to just be like the a pillar of community life in, <laughs> you know, Canadian and American society. There's nothing could be safer and sweeter than the Christmas bazaar. And my grandmother <laughs> told stories about, you know, making crafts for the Christmas bazaar for fundraisers for the church. Like it's, it's still, the, the, the ladies least. at my church have been getting together Wednesday mornings the last few weeks to make crafts for the upcoming Christmas bazaar. It's like the least radical thing you could <laughs> yeah. possibly do. But it, it in their early days, they were very it. radical. So uh, newspaper men said, called these promiscuous assemblies, which, which <laughs> I think every party I, I host from now on, I will tout as a promiscuous, promiscuous assembly. assembly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and they especially called out the men who attended these. So uh-huh, they called them Aunt Nancy men, <laughs> which I've never heard of, but I think is sort of a slight on their sexuality, perhaps. I think it is. I love that they have <laughs> to throw an early Aunt Nancy Aunt Nancy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and and it, this went even further than just jibes in the newspapers um the rich sanctioned and perhaps even funded uh mobs to attack the bazaars so they were oh. physically attacked and the women had to link arms to defend the men who they kind of corralled into the center uh because the mobs uh, apparently wouldn't attack the women as as quickly as they would attack the oh men so uh you know you've got ladies of all races ladies. linking arms to to protect their men it's so like judith is, judith <laughs> some really some really strong ladies yeah. cropping up in these holidays um so 
but the bazaars persisted despite uh, the attempts of these mobs and uh, the awesome. naysayers. Um, and this is when they really started um, changing what Christmas was as a holiday. So they were taking this wild and crazy holiday and kind of taming it. And then they started connecting it with children. Mm-hmm. And we're going to give gifts to other people. And we're going to mm-hmm. reward children for good behavior with gifts at Christmas, this sort of idea. So they kind of made it a children's festival, which, you know, is <laughs> can now no longer be a drinking festival, <laughs> hopefully. Um, and, uh, and they were also taking a whole bunch of... Um, topics in like children's um lives and linking it with slavery and that was really interesting too so this is a point in time where people would whip their children Mm -hmm. a switch or a belt or whatever and you'd whip your child um as a form of corporal punishment and um and that was slowly becoming unacceptable at this time. So people are just starting to kind of frown on that. And these abolition groups started linking whipping children with whipping slaves and mm. saying, you know, if you wouldn't whip your children, then why are we whipping other people? Um, and they were arguing that all enslaved people deserved rights. Um, and they were, most importantly, they were challenging um, the stereotypes. There's a lot of, a, a huge cultural stereotype that uh, slaved enslaved people were childlike Mm -hmm. they weren't as intelligent and weren't as capable and needed the paternal figure Mm -hmm. of the slave owner to manage their life um and that this perhaps even benefited them right some people went so far as to say that slavery benefited those who were enslaved so the abolitionists were really turning this on their head and you know saying this is not the case and arguing against that so that's pretty powerful um, by the end of the 1830s, so in less than a decade, these fairs were the primary source for funds for abolitionist causes. That's so, so cool. Were, this was their big money-making method. So the bazaar was taking over the <laughs> fundraising scene. Um, and uh, Christmas trees are even tied up in this as well. Uh, so early on in this, the, the abolitionist groups had chosen an evergreen shrub as their Christmas symbol because everyone, you know, a shrub is so rousing. (laughs) Rally behind the shrub, the the shrubbery. It's very Monty Python. Very Monty Python. Um, And later, I think they kind of got their their PR department on the case and and they replaced it with a tall Christmas tree. Mm, A little more inspiring. A little more inspiring, yeah. yeah. And there was was one guy's house they went to and he had a giant evergreen tree and they were just like taken with this tree and so they made this the symbol. Um, And it, it was kind of like a freedom flag for mm. their their uh, mission so that was pretty interesting so you know perhaps as you're decorating your christmas tree this year you can think ah this is my abolitionist freedom flag <laughs> as you hang ornaments um so all of this transformed christmas from this kind of crazy antisocial night of wildness to the, the really moral christian holiday that we recognize today um but with a great cause underlying because mm-hmm. they're trying to free other people from slavery awesome so, yeah so hey go to a christmas bazaar this year and uh i mean i know you know uh that money's probably not going to to free slaves but um again i know at our church the the money from the christmas bazaar does go to to uh to do good works and hopefully write some some social ills and do good in our community so i think that tradition is still is still alive um if you go and support uh, a really fun christmas bazaar and believe me there are delicious pies and i'm sure they're in every church bazaar you could ever go to uh those ladies know how to make pies so pies and um various lovely craft items and crocheted goods crocheted goods (laughs) and your money is uh hopefully and very likely going to an excellent cause yes so there you go there you go all right well um i i think our our last piece here actually follows on some of the themes in uh in your piece there heather um and i'm gonna kind of lead up to what this is all called because 
I just love this so much. Um, She's been teasing me with this all night. She won't tell me anything about it, and I'm not allowed to read the research articles on no. it. So she's just been dangling this as a carrot. All it's night. awesome, but it's I can't wait. The oh, the word that they use is just so wonderful. Um, so. So okay, as you as you said in the in the early days of America, the Pilgrims, um, they you know they really tamped down on Christmas celebrations because they were associated with drunken carousing, and Puritans were not cool with that. <laughs> so, uh, so they um, had made gift giving illegal, from oh, what I God, understand. What? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> all things Christmas were like not cool. But I I've read that before in um in um the English revolution during the, the, um, you know, time of Cromwell and stuff. And Christmas was kind of like illegal. Like people weren't allowed to celebrate Christmas. Yeah. So that kind of carried over to the U S and, uh, it took until, um, 1680 before, um, exchanging Christmas gifts became, uh, legal again. (laughs) So the ban was lifted because the pilgrims (laughs) had considered it, crass anathema <laughs> well i think if they could see the videos of black friday you know people fighting each other in big box stores this is that where would this be is crying so okay, by sorry. by the 19th century apparently led by abolitionists um in the you know the previous decades uh christmas gifts had become a really entrenched tradition so by 1911, this had reached like a, a fever pitch. <laughs> and in like 1911, 1912 or so, this was when this, the conversation around Christmas commercialism mm. in America started to crop mm. up. And it really began to irritate, in particular, the working women of New York City. Hmm. So, um, In 1911, they decided to form what would eventually be called the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving. (laughs) (laughs) And they called themselves right away. They called themselves Spugs. (laughs) Spugs. (laughs) Amazing. Up to now, I've been picturing. Like potatoes with legs. No, the <laughs> Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving. Were pissed off by <laughs> bugs, <these> stupid gifts. <laughs> I mean, it's an understandable cause. Yes, but all of the everything that goes around it is undeniably a bit silly. <laughs> I have to say. Um, so they do have a very, you know, there's, there's, there was this kind of general frustration with the commercialism in general yes. around Christmas, but there was also a, a specific practical complaint that, especially all of these kind of like. Uh, middle-class working-class women had which was that apparently the custom at the time was for employees to give gifts to their uh, bosses and executives in exchange for work favors good lord yeah which is really (laughs) awful and apparently um they they weren't like trinket gifts like you couldn't just give something cheap um so uh, in some cases apparently you would have to give something that would amount to like two weeks wages in worth um, and apparently this tradition, it kept kind of steamrolling along, propelled by like peer pressure and it just grew bigger and bigger every year. So, um, so the women are kind of putting their foot down and saying like, we have to stop giving like diamonds to your boss. <laughs> yes. It's going to bankrupt us. Probably has enough diamonds already. Yes. <laughs> this is early 1900s New York. <laughs> oh, so. Boy. 
the these ladies got the patronage uh, luckily for them of two of new york's richest uh, socialites mm-hmm. and wealthy women um so these two ladies were eleanor robson belmont who was one of the most famous actresses at the time and her husband's family is actually the namesake of the belmont stakes which is yeah. the second or third race in the triple crown i forget which the kentucky kentucky derby is first and then the belmont stakes i think Mm. it's the second one but i don't know my dad is if he listens to this he'll be yelling (laughs) at me um so that was that was her and then the other kind of big figure in this was ann morgan who was the daughter of jp morgan Mm. who is still one of the richest men who ever lived Mm. so these two ladies kind of spearheaded all of this and really started growing the spug organization (laughs) (laughs) and in um, 1912 there was a new york times article on uh, november 12th um, that read are you a giver of christmas gifts if you are do you give them in the true spirit of generosity or in the hope that you may get presents or favors in return If that is the way you have been offering holiday remembrances, and if you wish to rebel against this hypocrisy, then you are eligible for membership in the Spug Club. (laughs) Spug Club. (laughs) (laughs) So the club began in 1911 with like just a few dozen ladies, but it just exploded over the following year and grew to over 6,000 members. Wow. And uh, it was largely Belmont, who was this very charismatic mm. actress figure um, who who kind of, you know, garnered all this attention and got all this uh, membership increases for the Spug <laughs> organization. So they would have meetings. And this is where, again, like, I can, I can kind of, like, I, I can get behind their cause. Yeah. Like, it is a problem. And, like, yeah, definitely giving outrageous gifts to your bosses. Like, that's not cool. Right. Um, but so they would have these meetings, they would serve ice cream, um, and maybe like watch moving pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, they, they would have like dances and things. So I think it kind of became partly at least social and Mm. and partly about female solidarity um and a little bit kind of crossing class divisions because you had working women and some of these socialites some Mm. of the elite um so uh i love this another some really great uh headlines from from this uh episode so the next year the spug boom so was in full force so this would be like 1913 leading up to uh, christmas 1913 um in june so this is apparently they would have they would have events all year big spug dance on the pier (laughs) (laughs) miss morgan witnesses eight thousand vacation girls in an evening's pleasure vacation (laughs) so that's great so originally the uh the organization was just for women but men were eventually uh, allowed in mostly because of teddy roosevelt who joined in december 1912 and became the first man spug and he prompted hundreds of others to join and tamp down on christmas gifts and he wrote um on his society membership card i believe the group can accomplish what the individual cannot namely the gradual substitution of the right spirit of christmas giving in place of the custom of collective and exchange presents which exists today 
Uh, I agree to pay 10 cents a year dues and wear during all campaigns the spug button. <laughs> so this was it was it was a powerful movement that was uh, gathering steam. But uh, two years later, uh, as World War One erupted, mm. it kind of all fell apart because mm. everybody was focused a lot more understandably yeah. on that. And um, particularly the two uh, spug founders um mrs uh, belmont and morgan were focusing their philanthropic attentions mm. on the war and the fad was kind of over and it seems like it didn't you know kind of revitalize after the war but of course this is still an issue that we we hear about every year people you know hey look at look at charlie brown right there you go we all watch mm -hmm. that every year yeah. and consider the materialism of Christmas and yeah. you know hopefully try to fight against it a little bit although it seems to be sometimes <laughs> a losing battle when you go into the stores but it's just another thing to keep in mind yeah. so yeah. you know if you feel like it be a spug spug be a modern day spug join the spug movement <laughs> the society for the prevention of useless giving, useless giving. <laughs> I know it's That's great a really good acronym <laughs> Make sure to wear your spug button. Don't forget your spug button. And for goodness sake, if you haven't paid your 10 cent uh, dues for the year, please see me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's it for me. Do you have uh, anything that's else? That's it for me, Dana. All right. Well, I, you know, we hope you've enjoyed our, our holiday extravaganza. Um, we, you know, I think what we'll say maybe is if write in and tell us if there's anything you'd like to hear about for next year, any holiday lady related um, stories or traditions or anything like that that you'd like to share and again we'd love to hear um, you know about other holidays aside from Christmas whether Hanukkah or Ramadan or um, uh, Kwanzaa or you know whatever else secular stuff yeah, throw it all in there. Yeah. We'd love solstice, to hear. solstice, whatever, solstice whatever. yes, <laughs> solstice, <Yeah>. yes, <laughs> absolutely, right. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, again, uh, we are um, reminding you that we're not necessarily back on a regular schedule here. This is kind of a a special episode, but we're going to try very hard to get back into a regular posting. Um, pattern as as soon as we can but until then um have a very merry christmas and happy holidays indeed merry christmas merry christmas yes, happy enjoy, hanukkah enjoy the time off joy and noel um and as always we'd love to hear from you you can reach us on twitter our handle is yesterladies you can find us on facebook where we are uh, facebook.com slash yesterladies you can email us at yesterladies at gmail.com and of course you can visit our beautiful website um and and look back if you're you know if you're missing us then re-listen <laughs> to some of our old episodes you can find them on on itunes you can find them on you know whatever podcast app you use and of course you can find them on our website yesterladies.com so um merry christmas and happy new year thanks for listening mm -hmm.